You are listening to the Sojourn Church Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to view a video version of this message, please visit our website, sojournchurch.org. I, I like preaching at Sojourn because you're a jolly church. I, I, you, you should travel with me. Go to some of the churches where you realize laughter has never happened here. If you have your uh, Bibles, in just a moment, I'm going to read from the book of Acts. I want to just share with you about the books that are out in the lobby at the product table. I hope that you will uh, stop and get them. Uh, this is the small book. It's 21 Seconds to Change Your World. Um, this is a book about the interconnection between the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. It's interesting, isn't it, that two devotional classics from two of the world's major religions uh, were both written by men born in the same small village a thousand years apart. And uh, they're here, 21 seconds. That's how long it takes to pray the Lord's Prayer, 21 seconds to change the world. In Alabama, it takes 45 seconds, but... <laughs> the, uh, I didn't pick up one of the books, but David the Great is out there. That's a book about the life and leadership of King David. That's been our biggest seller, uh, except, except relaunch, relaunch is out there too. That's the one that hit the New York Times bestseller list. If each of you will go out there and buy a thousand copies each, you can put it back on the New York Times bestseller list. But it's there, that, that's really a business book. It's about turnaround leadership. David the Great is there. That's a book about the life and leadership of King David. And it, it's been a huge seller for us uh, because we hit a market that Christian publishers will tell you is virtually impossible to hit, and that's male readers. Um, if you go and look at Christian books, they're written by women, for women. The topics are female titles, that kind of thing. And uh, this book hit with men. And why not? David was a man's man, the tough guy. He was a, a warrior's warrior. He's the kind of guy you want to take deer hunting with you. You might not want him to take your wife deer hunting. Um, <laughs> but we deal with that. We deal with that. This is, not, this is not the sanitized Sunday school version, Little David, play on your harp. This, we deal with the real guy here, David the Great. So, ladies, buy one for your husband. And then uh, this is the newest book, and it, we're, I'm just thrilled with the response. I actually premiered this book here at this church. And I'm very, very grateful. I, I have appreciated my relationship with Pastor Terry, Pastor Chris, all of the whole staff here. And they let me premiere this book here. This is Courage to be Healed. It's not about physical healing, though, of course, we believe in physical healing. But this is about the healing of damaged emotions, inner healing. Lo tenemos en la lengua celestial, valentía para sanar. So we have that as well in Spanish. You do not have to speak Spanish to go to heaven. That is, that's a myth. Uh, that's a, but you will be given lessons when you get there. But why stand in that long, embarrassing line? You are, you're glad the storm is over, aren't you? <laughs> Our pipes are burst at our house. Preach all day. All right. All right. Um, 
I just want to say in all humility, you probably cannot have a meaningful life without all these books. So <laughs> it doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny personally from the sale of any of these books. I never have. Even the royalties from the publishers are paid directly to global servants. I don't take anything for preaching here. Uh, any love offering, honorary, all of that goes to Global Servants Foreign Missions Program, particularly our girls' homes in Southeast Asia and West Africa. So I hope you'll go out there to the table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> Refinance your home. Steal the children's lunch money. All right, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to Acts chapter 8, I want to read the first five verses of Acts chapter 8. It begins with a reference to Saul, whom we all know becomes St. Paul. Saul, a persecutor of the church, an instigator and a consentor to the stoning death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So it begins, and Saul. And Saul was consenting unto his death, Stephen's. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, now let me just pause a moment, that is Philip the deacon. He is often referred to in church literature as Philip the evangelist, but he was almost forced to become an evangelist. What he was was a deacon from Jerusalem. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana, porque te necesitamos mucho. Ayúdame, por favor, y lléname con tu Espíritu Santo, y úsame a su gloria, si es posible. Father, we praise you, we worship you, we yield ourselves to you as fully as we know how. Come, Holy Spirit. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. It's a fascinating little passage of Scripture. It is an insight, just a, a snapshot, if you will, of a struggle that is going on inside the psyche of the primitive church. Think of the last thing that Jesus said to his apostles and the disciples, the apostolic community, the church in Jerusalem, that seminal church, what was it he said to them? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and them that believe shall be saved, and them that believe not shall be damned. Think of the responsibility of that. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and those who believe you, think of the responsibility. Those who believe you are going to heaven, and those that don't believe you, they're, they're not going to heaven. They'll be damned eternally. And, and the apostolic community spends the next eight chapters of the book of Acts struggling 
with the application of that simple direction. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's like a Monty Python skit. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they said, we hear you. We understand exactly what that means. Stay here in Jerusalem and don't talk to anybody but fellow Jews. And they just, they just won't move. Eight chapters later, the apostolic community is still gathering where? Where they were comfortable, in the temple, in Jerusalem, on Solomon's porch. They know exactly what they've been told to do, and they cannot seem to make that work because they're living in, in a kind of uh, enclosed tribalism, if you will. They know whom they know. They know the town that they know. They know the culture that they know. They know the language that they speak, and they know people who also speak that. They know where they are, and they feel comfortable in that. And instead of singing, lead on, O King Eternal, they're singing, I shall not be moved. Many years ago, I was preaching a missions conference at a church in South Georgia. And afterward, a guy came up to me. God is my witness. His name was actually Bubba. And Bubba came up to me, and he said he never had been on a mission trip, and he said, I'd like, I'd like to go with you. I said, well, your timing is good. I said, in about three months, I'm leaving to go to Peru. Would you like to go with me to Peru? Oh, he said, that'd be great. So I said, get a passport, and, and I'll call and give you directions, uh, you know, how to get ready. I knew we were in trouble when Bubba called me. He said, Dr. Mark, I, I'm at the Kmart. And he said, I'm trying to get a passport. And he said, they ain't got Aaron. I said, no, Bubba, they ain't got Aaron at the, at the Kmart. I said, you can't, get a, you can't get a passport at the Kmart. Long silence. He said, if you can't get it at the Kmart in Colquitt County, Georgia, you're in trouble. I said, Bubba, I know it seems unlikely, but you can actually get one from the federal government. So I directed him toward the post office, and Bubba, having finally gotten a passport, his first, I found out that Bubba had never been out of the county in which he was born. He had never been over the county line. Do you see that the extrapolation of that reality is a lot of other firsts? He has never been to an airport. Hence, never been on a plane. We left, we plunged off into the journey to Peru like Dante and Beatrice, going through the circles of the inferno. Everything. Everything, he drove me nearly insane. What does that mean? What's that all about? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? When we got to Peru, this only accelerated. He was absolutely fascinated with just hearing the Spanish language. He was just fascinated with it. What do you, how do you say? How do you say shoe? How do you say nose? How do you say nose? Finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I just turned him over to Carlos, our interpreter, and I said, he's all yours. 
I came up the steps of the mission house one day and he was sitting there on the steps with Carlos and I heard him say, what about hat, Carlos? How do you say hat? Carlos said sombrero, sombrero. Bubba looked up at me and he said, how do you think they got sombrero out of hat? <laughs> I realized in that moment he had no philosophy of language. He thought everybody in the world was thinking originally in English. And these belligerent Peruvians were just insisting. So a few days later, he said to me with wonderment in his eyes, he said, these Peruvian children are the smartest kids in the whole world. I said, well, there's, I said, Bubba, you know, kids are kids, really kind of around the world. What, why would you think they're smarter than everybody else? He said, well, look at them, four or five years old, already able to speak Spanish. <laughs> but the piece de resistance happened at the end of the trip. We got back up. We went down to Tarma and La Merced and some other places. We got back up to Lima, and we had an extra day before our flight went out. So I said... Bubba, how would you like to go see the great cathedral built by Pizarro himself? One of the oldest edifices in the, in the New World, right on the Plaza de Armas in downtown Lima. I said, how would you like to go see the, the cathedral? He said, oh, I've, yeah, I've never seen a cathedral. I said, well, no, in Colquitt County, they ain't got Aaron. Um, so we went to the cathedral. We hired an English-speaking guide. We went through the whole cathedral, the little capillas off to the side and the confessional booths, their line after line of them and, and the carvings and the different things. And over the, over the central north at the altar, you remember the Pope, not, not the current Pope, but a previous one, he had just toured South America and he had been there. So they had it just spiffied up for the Pope. It was shining. And right up over the central altar, there was a larger-than-life-size uh, statue of the Virgin Mary in a gorgeous wedding gown, beaded wedding gown. And they had lights trained on, so it was just sparkling, shimmering, suspended in midair by virtually invisible guy wires. And I said, well, what do you think, Bubba? What do you think of all this? He put his hands on his hips, and he narrowed his eyes suspiciously, and he said, looks Catholic to me. That's a, what do you think it was first Baptist? You got the Virgin Mary in a wedding gown. And it dawned on me at that moment, I realized Bubba and those for whom he spoke actually live in such an enclosed tribe that they, they cannot even grasp that anybody else is out there. And they don't want to know it. They don't want to be confronted with it, and they don't want to have to deal with it. That is exactly where Jesus found and left the early church. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Listen to what he says, to every creature, to every creature. And they, they spend the next few years diligently ignoring that. 
until the first wave of persecution bursts upon the church in Jerusalem. There is the, there is the stoning of Stephen. There's the two arrests of Peter and John. Once they are beaten, later on, a little further along, and we're not dealing with it chronologically, James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus, but James Zebedee, Herod kills him, stabs him to death with a sword. It is, it is a, a wave of persecution that drives the church out of their safe haven. And they actually begin, the words actually say, what does Jesus say? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. So they actually fulfill the Great Commission reluctantly because of the persecution that drives them out off of, the, off of Solomon's porch, out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, and it says, and they went, and they went to Samaria. I just want to say this. I'm not... I don't want to, this to sound threatening. I'm just saying something. If God commissions us to reach out, to reach further, to be open, and we won't, he can unleash the dogs. I'm not, you know, God can say, well, you won't go? Let me see if I can help. So how much better to say, Lord, we want to do what you want us to do willingly. We, we, we want to reach out to beyond Jerusalem, beyond the temple, beyond what we know, beyond what we've always done, the way we've always done it with the people we've always done it for. We, we want to. We want to embrace that enthusiastically. So the first thing is God is serious about his commission. He is serious about it being fulfilled. He, he wants us to understand at what every creature means. The second thing is this, and that is that it won't always look like what it looked like, and it won't always be used by the people. It won't always use the people that have been used in the past. It's, it's, it's an intriguing thing. Philip is a deacon. Do you remember why he was elected? He was not elected to preach. He was not elected. He does signs and wonders and preaches, but that is not why he was chosen. He was chosen to wait tables. He was chosen because there was a squabble going on in the church. The Jewish widows weren't getting, were, the, the Grecian widows felt they were not getting as much as the Jewish widows, and they were squabbling. And Peter and John and the other apostles said, we don't, we ought not to be involved in this. So he was to settle a dispute and wait tables. And that becomes the very person that becomes Philip the Evangelist. Everybody says Philip the Evangelist. But really, we ought to say Philip the Waiter. So we, we never know in the next phase of God's extension beyond our self-limiting borders, the methodology and the persons that God will use. So Philip, Philip goes to... Samaria and preaches, and God uses him. Signs, wonders, and miracles. And the, uh, the scripture says, and they all with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip preached, seeing the signs and wonders which he did. 
and the whole town, think of this, the whole town is water baptized. <laughs> I've said to God, just once in my life, it doesn't have to be Dallas. It could be mule shoe, cut and shoot, tomball, you know. It doesn't have to be Dallas. How about walks a hatchet? But just once in my life, one town where every, everybody in the town gets saved and water baptized. Think of this now. The first time they move beyond the perimeters of Jerusalem, not only geographically, but culturally, the Samaritans, they are racially despised, they are theologically despised, and the first time they obey the gospel, they have the greatest conversion experience since the upper room. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17, which we didn't read, says, and the apostles, and when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were living as men and women baptized in the name of Jesus. And when the apostles laid hands on them, then and there they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostolic authority in Jerusalem hears that this, that this guy, this deacon, has won a, a Samaritan town to Christ. They send two apostles to check on things. And they have now, they've had an evangelical revival. Now they have a Pentecostal revival. The second wave comes, the power of the Holy Spirit comes, and the whole town now, having received water baptism under the apostles' hands, receive spirit baptism. And the next verse says, and the apostles returned to Jerusalem. <laughs> Does anybody else see that? Great, this is great, Lord. Thank God you've reached the Samaritans. We're going back to the temple right back to Jerusalem, right back to the temple, right back to Solomon's porch where we've been having church, doing church from the very beginning, the same way with the same people. And then it says, and God spoke to Philip, back to this guy. Now put yourself in Philip's shoes. I, am, I, am I the only one that you think about? Maybe I'm confessing more of my carnality than I like, but I know what I would say, Lord, I'm ready. You gave me Samaria. Now I'm ready for the next city. Let's, let's take it up. Let's go. What about, what about Antioch? What about Athens? Oh, wait, give me Rome. Let me, let me go and everybody in Rome be saved and baptized. Let me have Rome. And God said, go down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. <laughs> God doesn't even make it easy for him. He doesn't say there's going to be a miracle down there. Something wonderful is going to happen. You're going to love this. He says, you like winning a whole town to Christ? Here's your reward, a desert. I've been on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Let me just say something to you. Nothing. So, uh, Philip is walking down the, the Gaza road alone, 
He has left Jerusalem. He has gone to Samaria. He's had one of the greatest revivals in history. And now God sends him alone down a desert road. The next thing is this. God doesn't have to explain to you the directions along the way of your life of obedience. <laughs> there are just things that you say, God, I don't understand this. Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? God, ex explain it to me. Why won't you explain it to me? And God says, because see, I'm, I'm like God and all. God, God doesn't have to explain it to us. God, God doesn't have to share with us the meaning and the ramifications of his commands. God can give you the greatest blessing of your life and follow it with a desert road, and it doesn't seem right. What we want is for it to be orderly. I go through the desert, and then I get the city. If I will be faithful on a desert road, what I'm going to get is Samaria. God says, you've been faithful to me. I've used you mightily in this great thing, and you've been blessed. Now I'm going to give you the desert. We said, no, Lord, that is backwards. God doesn't think the way we think. He does not think the way we think. So he's walking down the desert road, and along comes a chariot. And there's an Ethiopian in the chariot who's riding along. Somebody else evidently is driving, we assume. He got the GPS on, and he's riding along reading the book of Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit says, this is an insight into Philip. Approach this chariot. And the next verse, Philip runs to the chariot. It says, and he ran to the chariot. How many times when I search my heart and my own personal history of my encounter with God, I obeyed him reluctantly. Approach the chariot. Okay, I'm going. I'm going to obey you. See how faithful I am. But you've ruined my life. Philip runs to the chariot. Understandest that which thou readest? Who, who is this Ethiopian? Why has he gone to Jerusalem to worship? Why is he there? I don't, I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, the Supreme Court in Israel ruled some years ago to validate a cultural belief among Ethiopians that there were, from the time of Solomon, Jews among the Ethiopians. They believed it always. You remember when the Queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon? And it says she came home with treasures. Remember that? The Ethiopian Jewish community believes that she came home with more than treasure. They believe that Solomon invested in her personally. And that from her and from Solomon's child, the Jewish community in Ethiopia grew. If you remember, anybody here old enough to remember, as I do, Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia. Do you remember what his title was? The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. The Emperor of Ethiopia. Why would he be called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah? Because he believed through Solomon, through the Queen of Sheba, he was a direct descendant of David. And all of that, people kind of mocked at that, but the, 
the Israeli high court ruled it's real and they have brought plane loads of Ethiopian Jews to Israel and authenticating that belief. So that's who this guy is. He's an Ethiopian Jew who has gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's reading the book of Isaiah and he says to, to Philip, look, it talks about suffering and all of this. Of whom does the prophet say this? Is he speaking about himself or some other? And it says, beginning there, Philip taught him the things of God. On that odd moment on the road of life where we find some encounter with somebody so different, so out of the way, something so, so new to us, we start where they are. And beginning there, and Philip explains the things to him. And he says, he believes. And he receives Christ as his savior. And he says, now what, what doth hinder me from being baptized? To see, here's some water. They get down from the chariot. They wade out into the little pool of water, whatever it is. And Philip baptizes him. And as they come up out of the water, Philip is translated away, snatched out of the air, and is found on a street corner in Azotus preaching. I've always had this question, if I ever get to ask a question in heaven, was he still wet? I, I just always wondered about that. People say, wow, it's interesting what you're preaching. What happened to you? So now think about this. That Ethiopian Jew, he has not been allowed to go in where only Jewish males can go. Even when he went to Jerusalem, even when he went to the Temple Mound, he's not allowed to go in to the, where only males go because it tells us he is a eunuch. Now, the father of the Christian church in Ethiopia is an Ethiopian Jewish eunuch. In other words, not only does God lead us in some strange places, not only does he expect to be obeyed, not only will we have some strange life encounters if we are open, but the results of those things may be infinitely greater than anything we can imagine. That desert road, there's a miracle at the end of that desert road. If we'll just be open to it, sensitive to it, if we just won't, if we just won't, wall ourselves in with our little tribe, if we won't peer out at the rest of the world with our hands on our hips and our eyes narrowed like Bubba and say, looks Catholic to me. Looks something other than me. When uh, I was pastoring a, a mega church in Orlando many years ago, when the new and horrifying pandemic in the world was, was not COVID, it was AIDS. Do you remember nobody knew how it was transferred? Nobody knew, it was, it was terrifying, sweeping the planet. I was in my office one day and it was a local hospital that called and said, um, Pastor Rutland, we, we have a patient here who wants to see a, a preacher and 
we haven't been able to get anybody to come. Would you come over? And I said, look, what, what's the deal there? They said, well, he, he, we just can't get somebody to go and visit him. And I said, now listen, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I said, is he in the AIDS ward? They said, well, yes, he is. I said, I'll be there in an hour. So I went, they did the whole deal, you know, the robe and the mask and everything, gloves. So I went in to this room and this boy, a 19-year-old boy, laying up in a hospital bed in a pink nightgown with a teddy bear in his arms, tubes in his. When I walked in the door, I said, I, I'm the pastor at Calvary Church. And he said, well, I guess you've come to tell me that Jesus hates queers. I said, well, no, actually, I came to tell you Jesus loves queers. And he said, well, I wasn't expecting that answer. I said, well, he does. That's, that's why I'm here. Jesus loves queers. He said, well, I've got some things I'd like to talk to you about. And we talked, shared together. Very heart-rending story. He, he said, uh, since the age of 14, he said, I've had hundreds of male lovers. I can't even count them. And he said, I'm, I'm dying with AIDS. So I'm going to die right here in this bed. And they tell me it's imminent. So I thought I'd talk to somebody. He said, my family won't visit me. Nobody will talk to me. I don't have any. He said, all my friends and lovers are gone. So he said, I just said, find somebody for me to talk to. And they decided that meant a preacher. So you're here. And I said, let me ask you a question, son. The issue is not where you die. It's where will you go after this room? You die in this room, but that's not the end of you. Where will you go after? And we began to talk, not about hell, but about heaven. And he said, I really would like to see that. Oh, I said, you can do. He said, are you, are you telling me after everything I've told you? He said, I'm dying for my sins. I said, yes, that is true. You are dying for your sins. But I said, you don't have to go to hell for your sins. Why would you die twice for the same sins? That seems horrible to me. And he said, listen to this. It's right out of the Bible. He said, what do I have to do? What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? So I talked to him, prayed with him. Sorry about that. I haven't thought about this kid in 20 years, so it's overwhelming me a little bit. So he, he prayed with me to receive Christ as his Savior. We talked for a few minutes more. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, he said, get a nurse, get a nurse. I thought he meant he was dying. I said, you need help? He said, I need, I need a nurse to help me. And I said, what, what's the matter, son? And he said, well, look at me. He said, I don't want to die in a pink nightgown. <laughs> you, you understand what it meant? That's, that's, I know it's strange theology, but that's actually a statement of sanctification. There's only one thing in his life left he could change, and he wanted it changed. Post-salvation, he wanted the only thing in his life that could change the change. He, he died the next day. So if you think Jesus stands at the foot of the bed of a 19-year-old boy dying with AIDS 
and says, well, you got what's coming to you. Then your Jesus is my devil. I, I think that what Jesus wants to do in us and through us is exactly what he try, was trying to do in the primitive church. Go out. Reach further. It's not about tribes. It's not about language or culture. Reach out. Tear down the things that separate you from others and take the desert road. If he gives you a city, rejoice. Isn't that wonderful? If he gives you thousands, I don't know what your future here is, Pastor. I probably shouldn't talk to you in front of your whole people, but I don't know what your future here is. May God give you Dallas. May God, the thousands pour in here. Praise God. But if the next road is desert, that also can be God's will. People say all the time, this just can't be God's will for me to be out here all alone. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it is. I was pastoring a church with nearly 4,000 people in the auditorium every Sunday. To find myself all alone in an AIDS ward with a 19-year-old boy in a pink nightgown with a teddy bear. But isn't it funny, all these years later, when I think back on pastoring that megachurch, that's actually one of the most precious moments. God wants to push us out. He wants us to stretch further. It's not about tribes. It's about Jesus. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and mercy usward, generation after generation, that you are not just the God of Abraham, but of Isaac and Israel. We praise you for it. God, I thank you that you have done wonderful things in our lives. But I thank you also that the best is yet to come. I believe you for it. I thank you for it in advance. Now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to pray for you if you want me to. If you don't want this, then don't raise your hand because if you raise your hand and take this prayer, God may take you up on it. So think before you ask for the prayer. If you would like me to pray with you that God will give you divine encounters where you may present Christ to people where they are, if you're willing for that, then you lift your hand and say, here, here I am. Whoa. Wow, so many. Whew. Lord, you see this forest of hands and mine also is raised. Lead on, O King Eternal. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tents shall be our home. Coming out of a Kmart, at work, wherever, lead us to that person. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you and God bless this precious church. Thank you for listening to the Sojourn Church podcast. For more messages or content similar to this, please visit our website. If you would like to support our ministry, please visit the first link in the show description or visit sojournchurch.org slash give.